Christians. We were downstairs doing this um, sort of follow-up to the multiplication conversation, and I was uh, asking everybody, so what are some distinctives about Tabernacle? What makes us a little bit, you know, not unique, but distinct? And, um, and like one of the folks said, yeah, we sing. <laughs> Y'all sing well. Um, praise the Lord. It honors Him. Well done. Hey, we're in Hebrews 13. You've been standing for a while, so um, keep your seats. I'm going to, we're finally in chapter 13. This is the home stretch, and I want to read the first uh, six verses. It's, um, you're going to hear very, very clearly sort of the pivot from uh, what what we believe, what we're being called to to believe and ascribe to, to, to really what we're supposed to do in light of the truths of the gospel. Uh, so this is an earful of so what, right? Like this is the so what of the gospel. Here's what, um, what the gospel calls us to do. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Help us to to hear it, receive it, and and take it to heart. Lord, may it change us. Uh, May it make us uh, more and more disruptive as your kingdom disrupts us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, so yeah, a lot of like, okay, now here's what life in the kingdom looks like. And, and so I want to break this into just two parts as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, the fact that we have uh, a God who disrupts our views of, of what he's like. Uh, there's a disruptive divinity uh, that comes to us through the gospel. And that disruptive revelation of who God is um, once we receive that, once we take it to heart, once we live in light of that, it makes us disruptive disciples. Uh, men and women and young men and young women and children who uh, are not going with the status quo, but are going against that and living lives that are, that are in contrast to the world, and that's disruptive to the world, right? So disruptive divinity, disruptive disciples. Let's um, let's just back up for, for a second. We had, um, last week, uh, Bailey was here. Bailey Wagner, who's the new RUF pastor uh, at JMU. I was excited for him to preach um, because I have a new JMU student at home. Woohoo! Go Dukes and Lydia. Um, so we're thankful that he's going to be there. But the week before, uh, we were wrapping up chapter 12 in, in, in Hebrews and Boy, chapter 12 ends on a very attention-getting note, shall we say, if you've still got your Bibles open. Um, Let me look at verses 28 and 29 with you. Chapter 12, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Does that get your attention? I hope so. Uh, Our God is a consuming fire, right? And then you get to these verses and we come across things like in verse 4 where it says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Um, God is not to be trifled with, right? Like I thought about calling this section uh, dangerous divinity, but I went with disruptive divinity. Um, Dangerous gets your attention, right? Like we we were talking about that two weeks ago, but it needs some qualifiers. Uh, I, I like disruptive divinity better because when we say God's dangerous, it maybe makes people think that he's harmful. Well, He's not, he's dangerous in a good way, right? Like nothing that is good, nothing that is pure, nothing that is lovely, nothing that is holy, nothing that is um, beautiful will ever feel threatened by the holiness of God. God is only a threat. He's only dangerous to what is unholy. But in that sense, yes, God is dangerous. God is a consuming fire. And, and, and let's not miss the reality that, that Jesus was considered dangerous to um, the uh, established uh, powers, you know, political powers and, and religious powers. Uh, so much so, Jesus was such a big threat to them that they had to kill him. They had to get rid of him because they could not abide um, any disruption to that, that status quo, politically, religiously, etc. So, so God comes to us as this consuming fire and disrupts our view of divinity. Uh, he is not a nice, domesticated grandfather in the sky whose job it is to just be tolerant and turn a blind eye to everybody's sins and just, you know, pat everybody on the bum and usher them into some, you know, happy little kingdom at the end of time. That's not his job. That's not the God of the Bible. Um, The God of the Bible is a consuming fire. His His divinity disrupts the status quo. It disrupts the worldly ideas of who God is and who we are. And he disrupts us in a good way. Hebrews ends chapter 12 with quoting from Deuteronomy 4, our God is a consuming fire. And some of the ways that he disrupts our view of divinity, we see in the so what of chapter 13. Like here you get in verse two, this comment about do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And then, so here's something that shows us, that disrupts our view of how God reveals himself to people. Like, what does that mean? That, that there are times when, when people uh, are doing something kind for a stranger, welcoming a, a, you know, an alien in, somebody who needs help, and they show them that hospitality. And what in fact they're doing is they're, they're showing hospitality to God's representative to an angel, to a supernatural messenger. And then, so this gets disruptive to us. Now we're going, wait a minute, what do you mean? Certainly that's, that's beautiful and good when somebody is demonstrating that kind of hospitality. Think of Abraham 
uh, feeding those three strangers, uh, and turns out they were angels. Well, there's, this, this apparently happens. <laughs> there are people that show kindness uh, to strangers, and they end up being angels unaware. But this works the other way too, doesn't it? This is what's disruptive about this. That means that there's the possibility, right, that the people that you and I have ignored or snubbed might have been God's messengers, God, God's ambassadors that, that we turned away. We didn't have time for them. We didn't want any inconvenience for them. They didn't look like us. They didn't smell like us. I need to keep my distance. But God's saying that, that could have been his representatives, right? It reminds me of, um, do you remember the, the, the animated version of Beauty and the Beast? Um, the um, live action one, I don't remember as well, but I, I, I love the animated one, especially that opening uh, montage where you've got like the, all the stained glass um, art and images that are, that are going on as, as the narrators telling the story. I got the, um, the old beggar woman, you know, that image from the stained glass on the front of your bulletin, just so you can see her. She's got the rose, right? And she is denied shelter. And some of you remember, you, 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 you committed it to memory, that whole narrative. Uh, he, he denies, she's denied shelter from a prince who was spoiled, selfish, and unkind, right? Um, and, and she warns him, right, not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found within. And when he dismisses her again, the old woman's ugliness melts away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. And in that moment, the prince with, with terror realizes his error, and, uh, uh, but it's too late. And she, this beautiful enchantress, makes his, and this is important, what happens to him? She makes his outside consistent with his inside. And she turns him into a beast. He had no time for that which was different, that which was strange, that which was foreign to him. Uh, and this is really the, the old ways, our old fairy tales were um, you know, just our culture's way of trying to instill in our children uh, virtues, goodness, beauty, and truth that we got distilled really from, from the Bible, from places where Jesus would gather his disciples together and say, here's what it's going to be like at the end of time. When God the King stands on his throne and he's going to divide the world into the sheep, into the goats, and the righteous, the sheep, are going to answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? and are thirsty and, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did, you, when, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. God's representatives and how we treat one another has direct impact on what our relationship is like with the Lord. This is what's disruptive about our view of divinity, right? Because so many people, even us, you know, we fall into this too. We end up thinking that religion is something strictly upward, right? Or something strictly inward. 
Uh, and so the world religions are really good about the strictly upward thing. Like we, we look at religion as just, you know, um, knowing God's word, whatever view of God somebody has, whatever view of the, whatever is their scripture. You know, we want to know his word, we want to know his commandments, you know, and we're going to worship him, etc. And so this strictly vertical uh, orientation toward religion is practiced by many Jews, many Muslims, and many people who would call themselves Christians. It's only vertical. And then you get the other group who are all about the inward, right? And religion is strictly internal. It's strictly about experience. It's strictly about um, internal, personal transformation, you know, uh, enlightenment, etc. And, and this could really involve and, and can categorize a whole lot of people in the Eastern religions, as well as a whole lot of people who would say they're Christians. Does that make sense? Only vertical or only inward and failing to grasp that the kingdom of God, you, it's both. And, and God, God save the person who ever tries to divide those. That cannot happen. You've got to have both because this is how God relates to us. Let's not forget that the revealed religion of the Bible describes something that is not only upward and inward, but it's also outward. It's all three, um, and you can't divide any of those. The greatest commandment is, of course, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, upward, inward, and outward. Um, just a couple of places where this becomes super evident is John, uh, 1 John 4. The apostle says, look, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's, it's hypocrisy. Uh, James says something very similar Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. If you want to know what integrated religion is, vertical, upward, inward, outward, it's this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You you, you can't divide any of that up. And this is disruptive uh, to our view of what religion is. All three, and and they all come together. And then we get to verse 5, and we hear how the Lord is our helper. And this disrupts us too, because we're trying to keep all these pieces together. Verse 5 says, uh, be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what God told Joshua. In Joshua 1, as he's taking the mantle of leadership, um, Moses has died, and now Joshua is leading the Israelites, and God has to promise Joshua, I'm not going to abandon you. Uh, And then we can confidently say, uh, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's um, Psalm 118 that we did in our call to worship. Hebrews keeps referring to the scriptures of the Old Testament. So um, why is this disruptive? The fact that the Lord is my helper, we hear that and we go, oh good, <laughs> that, that sounds nice. Well, but don't, don't forget, God is also a consuming fire. Um, so He's consuming fire. He's my helper. He's fire. He's a help. Like that. Those don't sound like they go together too well, but, but then we just have to kind of pause a moment and take a breath and go, well, fire is dangerous if it's not handled properly, but it's really, really helpful. 
if we respect it. Why do they have to be opposites? So our relationship with God is just, we need to be reminded that we don't play with fire. We don't play with God. God is not a hobby. He's a king. He's a Lord. And we we bow before him. Um, We're in his kingdom. uh, And yet he has promised to help us. He's promised to, to love us, to never abandon us or forsake us. And so here's what it looks like to respect the fire. Instead of playing with it, to respect it. So the fire helps us. Like What it means is that we were the ones who were hungry um, and thirsty and naked and in prison, and Jesus came to us. That's what he did. And he, he exchanged places with us. He loved us so much that, like, do you remember how he died? Thirsty? Naked, guilty, in custody, like in jail, right, before his execution. Do you, do you see all those things were true? He, he embodied that. He stepped into that so that he could take that away from us. So that he could take that sentence for our sin upon himself and exchange places with us so that you and I become free from the, the consequences of our sin. They were poured out on Jesus instead of us, and we are forgiven and we are given that grace and that help when we confess we need that help. I need that forgiveness. I need that grace. Do you know what it looks like to play with fire? Do you know what's dangerous? Is the, the um, some of you have heard this, probably most of you, and some, even, some people, this is what's super dangerous. Some of you think that what I'm about to say isn't here. Some people think that it's a Bible verse that God helps those who help themselves. That is playing with fire. That is an unbiblical view of God that needs to be disrupted. Because, I mean, work that out. If, if, if God helps those who help themselves, who's ever going to call out for God if we have the ability to simply help ourselves. Just pull yourselves up by your own bootstrap. Do it yourself. You know, you don't need God. You just need a little bit more discipline, a little bit more, you know, uh, steel in your spine, and you'll be fine. Just hang in there, you know, and you can do it. And all that does is make people independent and arrogant. They don't need help. They just need everybody else to be more like them. That's very, very dangerous. That's the bad kind of dangerous. You know what's the good kind of dangerous? The good kind of dangerous that breaks down our, the, the walls of our pride and our self-sufficiency is to go, I need a Savior. And, and that's what brings us in to the kingdom of God, is to look at Jesus as the one who came to save me. He did that for us. He loved us that way. He was hospitable to us and welcomed us when we were hungry, naked, poor, and and thirsty, right? That's the way the gospel works. And um, there was a book out 30 years ago or so 
by Christine Pohl. Um, she wrote a book about hospitality called Making Room. And she says, a life of hospitality begins in worship. With the recognition of God's grace and generosity, hospitality is not first a duty and responsibility. It is first a response of love and gratitude for God's love and welcome to us. So this is the good news of the gospel. God helps the helpless. <laughs> he helps those who can't help themselves. And he gladly does it. And he, and he welcomes us to his table. Um, so that view of God is disruptive. That's not what the world thinks. Uh, it's hard for us who are in the church to think that. He's a consuming fire and he helps us. He's both. And we need to regard him as holy and we need to remember he's our father. And as we embody that, as we believe that more and more, and we start to live that out, we become disruptive disciples, worshiping our disruptive God. Not many people, um, I don't think, aspire to live sort of ordinary lives. You know, you, you, you talk to kids, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up, Johnny? What do you want to be? Uh, Susie, when you grow up, I want to be ordinary. Um, I, just nobody aspires to that. Um, we want to feel special. Uh, we want to make a difference. We, we, we want our lives to count. Like we don't want to just kind of, well, who was that? I, I have no idea. Um, look, I, I know that pride and ambition can hijack that and, and do but that desire is not bad. That desire to, to not be ordinary actually comes from bearing God's image, who calls us as his followers to be a part of his extraordinary, his extraordinary work of recreating the world, of making all things new. And, and as disruptive disciples, we are given at least five ways to, to change this world, to be a part of what Jesus is doing and making all things new. And, and just to get into it, we, we're, number one is love in ways that threaten the status quo, right? Love one another with brotherly love. The world loves those who are lovable. That's not hard. That's easy to do. Disruptive disciples who have received God's disruptive kingdom are called to love the unlovable, uh, to love the hard to lovable, the, the, you know, don't deserve to be lovable. Those are the people that disciples are called to love. And we're to love those who are different from us. And to love when it's costly to us. And to love with others with, with grace and with truth. And let me just clarify, all right? So love does not mean that we endorse every person's lifestyle. Love just means that we're affirming people as those who have dignity. This is a dangerous kind of love. This, this love will get you into trouble. This love is the kind of love that made enemies for Jesus. We already talked about that. But listen to this. Like 50 years ago, 60 years ago, Martin Luther King was considered dangerous. Just like Jesus to the, to the sinful political and religious structures during the civil rights era. There was um, the William Sullivan, who was the uh, head of intelligence operations at the FBI, pretty important position, wrote a memo right after um, the I Have a Dream speech. This is 1963. 
And he says in that memo to the FBI, we must mark him now if we have not done so before as the most dangerous Negro of the future of this nation. If you love like he did, you might get into trouble. It's a dangerous kind of love. It's disruptive. It's the kind of love that Jesus showed. What about hospitality? This is part of what it looks like to be a disruptive disciple is, is, is being open and welcoming with, with our homes. Um, and not just at our, at our tables, but with our schedules, with our, our time, with our um, with our thoughts, like, like creating open spaces to, to listen to people and to consider their views instead of just the cancel culture that just writes everybody off and go, help me understand. That's a, that takes a, a posture of hospitality. It, it takes a, a dangerous posture according to the world. Like we, we see this kind of hospitality through those of you who are hosting our home groups. Thank you. Thank you for that. We see this kind of hospitality from those of you who are showing up to, to load or unload moving vans. Thank you for that. Um, this, is, this is dangerous because I was, um, as a great example, I was listening to an interview. Uh, Gabe Lyons runs a group called Think with a Q, think.com, um, great content. And he was interviewing an Iranian, um, ethnically Iranian uh, man named David Nasser, who is now a Christian pastor but grew up in Iran. His father was in the Iranian military before the 1979 uh, revolution in Iran. And his father's life, his whole family's life was in danger. They fled Iran. Uh, and they went to the most logical of all places. They moved to Texas. <laughs> um, and, in, and, and, and then they moved to Alabama. But you can just imagine this little kid, David Nasser, uh, growing up in Texas and then Alabama and just being, you know, from Iran and, and just how much of an oddball he must have been. And in high school, uh, he just made a decision, I'm going to stop being a weird kid and I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm going to adopt all of the world's attitudes and practices. He became the party kid, the cool kid. And then his dad, who now owned a restaurant in Alabama, had a day when he, he was short-staffed and they're in the weeds at the lunch rush. And if you've ever been in, in food service, you know what it's like to be in the weeds. And none of the foods come in out of the kitchen. None of the tables are getting their orders taken. And, um, and, and this group of people that's sitting at a table, they get up. And instead of getting up to leave, you know, and, and maybe cuss out a, a, a server or two on the way out, they get up and they start helping. They start helping in this restaurant. They can see what's going on and they start taking orders and they start bussing tables and they, start, they go back to the kitchen. What can we do to help? And they do this for the next two weeks. They just show up and they volunteered in order to help this Iranian restaurant owner. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, David, who's in high school, has some friends and they invite him to church. David says, well, I can't go to church. We're Muslims. I said, no, come on, come on. Come to our youth group. It's pretty cool. And he's like, I, I, my dad's not going to let me go, but I'll ask him anyway. And so he goes into his dad's room, and he knows exactly what his dad's going to say. No, you, you are a Muslim. You, may not, you cannot go to church. And instead of that hard line, his dad says, well, what church? And David says, so-and-so church. Hmm. 
Those are the people that helped me in the restaurant. They were from that church. You go to that church. And David became a Christian. And then two months later, his sister became a Christian. And a few months after that, his brother, as Downs, became a Christian. And then his mom became a Christian. And then his dad, the, the, the militant, Muslim, proud, Iranian father, bowed his knee to Jesus. And David says after that, he says, my story is one of traumatic hostility, and then it got hijacked by traumatic hospitality. Dangerous hospitality. Just going to keep going here. Visiting prisoners is disruptive. When we care for those who are in bondage, it disrupts the status quo. It pushes against darkness. And, and, and we do this not only visiting prisoners um, in, in jail, literally, uh, but you do this by visiting those who are in bondage to addictions. And you do this by visiting those who are in bondage to disease and decay. And you do this by visiting those who are in bondage to loneliness. And there's some places, obviously, where this overlaps with hospitality. But if you want to do this literally, I'll give you one really practical way to do it. Uh, John Miller is a member of Tabernacle and has been for the past yeah, five or six years. Six years, yeah. Because six years ago was also the anniversary of his incarceration. He's serving a 30-year sentence for something that's unspeakable. He did something terrible. He did something God hates. And John repented, and he's a new creation. Uh, you know, I, only God knows his heart. I don't know any of your hearts, but you know what I know? I know what you say, and I know what you do, and you know what I say, and you know what I do, and I know what John says, and I know what John does, and I can testify to what looks a whole lot like the fruit of repentance. And I count him my brother, and many of you do too. Many of you write him, and you visit him, but if you don't know who he is, He's a member of this church. You can write him. You can visit him, literally, at Buckingham Correctional Center. You can go, you know, it takes a little bit of effort, but you can go visit those in prison. You can visit John Miller, one of your brothers here at Tabernacle. 26 years from now, if they don't uh, amend uh, the parole laws in Virginia, he'll need a church family to come home to. It's a long time from now. Let's not forget our brother. Visiting prisoners, honoring the marriage bed, keeping sex within marriage. There's hardly anything more countercultural to the sexual status quo right now than, than, than what Hebrews 12, or 13 is telling us in verse 4. Being a dangerous disciple, let me be clear, is not an excuse for us to be judgmental and angry. But it does mean that we have to hold the line on God's good purposes for marriage and for sex. Lastly, being a disruptive, dangerous disciple means keeping your life free from the love of money. Don't live for it. Don't, don't hoard it. Our, our money is U.S. currency, to be sure. But you know what it is fundamentally? It's kingdom currency. God gives us what we have so that we can, can be, our, in a sense, an answer to our own prayer for thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how we use our stuff and what we give away. And how generous we are? Is your generosity dangerous to you? 
Is my generosity dangerous to me, to my standard of living? If it doesn't cut into my standard of living, it's not biblical generosity. It's got to be a threat to that for it to be what honors God. Look, if you and I are going to change the world, um, then what's going to happen to the old broken world? It'll go away. It's, that's the offensive nature of the kingdom of God. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But if it is broke, we need to change it. And this makes us dangerous. Like, does that evoke anything in you? Do you, you, you don't want to be ordinary, right? We want to be a little bit dangerous. God is a consuming fire. He's, he's not nice. <laughs> he's transformative. He's dangerously uh, loving, hospitable, and, and generous. Jesus was dangerously kind and, and pure and welcoming, and his disciples ought to be a little bit dangerous too. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the gospel, for coming to us and welcoming us and blessing us who were hungry and thirsty, who were naked and guilty and in prison and in need of saving. And you traded places with us. Thank you for transforming us. Thank you for, uh, for the life that we have in your kingdom and, and for this way that your gospel disrupts our view of, of how we know you and how we relate to you. And Lord, we pray as your disciples, make us disruptive too, even dangerous to a world that's in decay and a status quo that is ugly. Lord, help us to bring what's beautiful to bear. Help us to bring kindness and compassion and generosity and hospitality into the light, that it might become more normative for us and more normative for our community and for even, yeah, more for this church, we pray, and for the, uh, the churches around us. Lord, would you bless us and show us how to live more like Jesus? And Lord, we pray for your blessing to be on all of us, but in particular, we pray for some of our households, for Ken and Joan Whitecotton. Thank you for their marriage. Thank you for their service to our congregation. Uh, thank you for their daughter, Danielle, and for her children. We thank you for Caleb and Calvin, uh, for Connor, for Corbin, for Ketcher, for Cordelia, for Kaylee, for Cornelius, for Credence, for Caspian. Thank you for all of these children. Thank you for these young men, young women, and boys and girls, and Lord, for the future that you have for them as they follow you, as they become disruptive disciples. Lord, thank you for the White Hills, for David and Stephanie, for Sam and for Miles. Now, we praise you for their, their love for us, and we pray that we would love them well in return. Thank you for Teresa Wilderman. Thank you for her son, Andy, and Lord, we pray uh, in Thanksgiving for Teresa's service to us as our administrator. Lord, bless these and and all of the, the households and individuals here at Tabernacle, we thank you for how you're answering prayers among us. Thank you for your, your answered prayers for Shirley Phillips, for, for Luke Pearson, uh, for John Miller, uh, for, for John and Lorena McCall. And we pray for Tom, uh, who's a friend of, of one of our members. We pray for his son who died unexpectedly last week. We bless this family on their loss and their grief. We thank you that you were the God who relieves those who are under stress. Thank you that you bring peace to those who are anxious. Thank you that you bring healing to those who are hurting, comfort to those who are grieving, endurance 
for those who are struggling. Help us, we pray. Bless our home groups. Thank you for the leaders. Thank you especially, as we've, as we've noted, for the hosts. Thank you for the community of Greenville and other areas around us. And we just continue to pray. Lord, lead us as we seek to multiply and, and, and show us where and who and when. And Lord, we thank you lastly for our partners in mission uh, in Colombia, for Hellman and Rosalba Ocampo, and pray that they would continue to see lots of fruit as they minister to the tribes and the jungles um, in and around Colombia. Lord, as we give tithes and offerings now, please um, receive these things from joyful hearts, from, from hearts that have received your generous gifts to us through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.